Hey, everybody, and welcome a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, right here, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities. I'm Randy Cardoon, and this week we talk about what you think your car is worth. There's a brand new show coming up on Discovery with a special preview this Monday, April 30th, called Sticker Shock on Discovery TV. Joining me this time around, once again, my guest, co-host Bob Beck from the Great American Auto Scene, or Gas, with two A's. Yes, Bob is cooking with gas, and he joins us on the phone. And two of the four car experts from Sticker Shock, Nick Smith and Todd Wortman. Nick, let's start with you. The first car that first made an impression on you. First car that I noticed when I grew up was the uh, was a Plexi Nose uh, 1971 uh, Ferrari Daytona um, on a game called Top Trumps. It was a, uh, a card game where you'd outdo uh, competitors with uh, with specs of cars. It was the one that, that that really turned me on. But it was matchbox and dinky cars from a very early age, sprawling all over my mum's living room, annoying her on a Saturday morning because she couldn't vacuum because there were cars all over the place. And it was called Top Trump. Top Trumps, yeah. Hmm. We don't do politics here, but that's all right. Todd, what about you? <laughs> uh, first car I ever really noticed um, or became really drawn to was the Jaguar E-Type. My dad bought uh, probably the worst E-Type I had ever seen and uh, wanted to restore it himself because that was what his budget allowed. And I came home from school one day, and it was uh, sitting in front of the house with a brick in front of the wheel, and it needed a full restoration. And I watched him go through that car over the following three or four years and turn it into a, a pretty neat driver. Now, you you grew up where? I grew up in Northern California. My father was a new car dealer. So my whole time growing up, my dad was a Volkswagen dealer. They had uh, Alfa Romeo as a, a second brand. So I had access to really neat stuff. And the Road and Track magazine came into my house monthly. And I read that cover to cover probably twice a week until the next month's magazine came out. And when you're growing up and getting along with my father was a little difficult, we could always uh, find common ground among car specs and road test reviews. And it was a nice thing for us to be able to chat about rather than the rest of life, I think. It's interesting that you say Road and Track is, is your car. And a lot of people we talk to on the show, and, and Bob knows this, is uh, we get all sorts of feedback about, well, Rod and Custom or Car Craft or that kind of thing. Nick, does it kind of talk about your sensibilities versus, you know, the kind of magazines you grew up with, with as, as a child as far as auto magazines are concerned? Oh, my God, yeah, absolutely. You, li- um, you used I to was, read what? I was glued to a couple of my, uh, motorcycle magazines and, uh, and every car magazine I could get hold of and, and was frequently found sitting in the newsagents just reading them cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And Bob, you grew up certainly with a lot of the ones we grew up with where is a lot of hot rod or originated and a lot of uh, high performance vehicles. Yeah, I did, but uh, I was a sports car guy when I started out things. Really? Getting into cars. So uh, the road and track, car and driver, auto week, that was the primary magazines for me. The hot rod was secondary, although I love hot rods and you know that by what I have now. But initially, I was a, a British sports car guy. I have, I've had, I don't know, four TR4s, GT6, a couple of MGBs, uh, midget, uh, sprites. It, it just, I, I was just, I love the sports cars. I love being able to go around the corner, and I figured with those cars, I couldn't do it very fast, so I was safe. And you had a Ford Maverick. 
And I had a Maverick, yes. <laughs> Which, and I reworked the suspension so it went around quarters. <laughs> Okay, guys. Before we get into the show, which is which is certainly intriguing, because uh, coming up, Sticker Shock is going to be on Discovery. Uh, it starts uh, on April thirtieth for a, a special preview on uh, Monday, April thirtieth, ten p.m. Eastern and seven p.m. here on the left coast. Talk a little bit about the cars that right now are in your garage. In my garage. Yes. Not enough. I've, as I explain to anybody who'll listen, buy them done. Don't try and restore them. So I've got three cars in restoration and a bike. Oh, my God. You couldn't resist, going. huh? They've taken uh, a little over 18 months. Unfortunately, the 18 months aren't consecutive months, and it's taken years to get to the point where I still don't have them in the garage. Um, but they are a... Um, 67 Sunbeam Tiger, 74 Alpha GTV, and a 57 Alpha Julietta Spider. Uh, I've got a Lotus, a fake Lotus 7 from Westfield with a V8 in it, which mm. is a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and a bunch of motorcycles and Mercedes 560 SL and a couple of other bits and pieces. And they talk here about uh, some of the paperwork as we uh, had a chance to look into what you've been doing lately is, is the, the motorcycle you will never give up under any circumstance. <laughs> and I bet the one that I sold last week. Um, did you really? I did. I sold my Vincent Black Shadow last week. <laughs> Wait a minute. Me. Was this the Triumph? It killed me. Oh, the Triumph. Oh, oh, the triumph. oh okay. The Triumph. Well, I well, for a I'd minute there, I, got, I thought I got bad intel. Go ahead. No, no, no. I bought a, uh, I bought a, uh, a new Triumph in 2005 um, that is just never going to go away. That one's the one that stays. It saw me through a great deal of turmoil. So as Jay Leno had the... Buick that he slept in when he was trying to become a comic and he fixed it up later when he made some money. This is your Buick. And not as comfortable to sleep in, I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Though I've tried. (laughs) And nearly had to on a couple of occasions. So, Todd, I guess the best question to ask you is what car do you have in your garage that you've been sleeping in? You know, I don't sleep in the garage. Thankfully, we have other rooms for that. Oh, good. my garage is rather light right now. Um, I've been through a lot of cars in the last few years. They've all kind of been 73 and older Porsche 911s. I had uh, a few Ferraris, uh, a 308 GTB, a very early car, and a 512 BB. Um, all cars that I loved, but you know what? I really don't possess the gene that says forever. You know, I think that uh, I suffer from next is more exciting than present. So right now, there's sort of a hole in my garage. I do have one car which I may really never sell, which is um, what is now an aging Mercedes G500. And uh, it's not exactly collectible, but I enjoy it very much. I don't drive it very, every day. Isn't it, though, the story? I mean, why, why would you keep a vehicle like that? Is it because of the story behind the car? Uh, there is something really uh, interesting about how it makes me feel when I drive it. And although I don't scratch the surface of its capabilities um, as a machine, uh, I know that they're there. And I think someday I'll go really far off of a paved road with it and may or may not come back with it. <laughs> Mercedes off-road, but, you know, I, I look at the SUVs and I really don't see them off-road, but uh, go for it. <laughs> Well, you never know. I mean, anything is distinctly possible, I think. We were talking about the vehicles that you have. Obviously, these are not cars that you would 
have somebody redo or, or restore or something like that? No, I've I've definitely had had cars restored, and that's um, it, not my favorite thing to do. But if they need to be nicer, then they need to be nicer. But mm-hmm. there are some people whose entire experience of the hobby is the restoration process and and the hunt for rare parts, and that's. A, a really common hobby. It's it's not my thing, but it's popular. Yeah, a Some lot of, of people us have do it. hobbies thrust upon us. Well, and it brings up kind of a great segue, I guess you could say, to you guys doing the show. Is and, and I saw the promo that's currently on the internet. You can see it. Uh, just kind of search for uh, a sticker shock uh, trailer, I guess, and it, it shows up. And it's it's interesting because it's almost like people drive in. They're in a position on your set or or warehouse, and you guys, and it's it's you two, and they have a couple other guys that do it as well. We do. Yep. It's almost like, and I don't know if I can say this, but almost like a antiques roadshow with wheels. I the atmosphere. That's exactly what it is. I think that's very correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much do you have a chance to look at these cars before you make a deduction on it? Very, very little. And I think that that, since we're not actors, since we're actually car experts as opposed to entertainers, I believe that the lack of prior access to the car probably made it a better TV show because I had maybe 30 minutes to an hour to look at a car while the owner was being interviewed by the host. From there, I had to do my quick research on serial numbers or stampings uh, and then basically organize my thoughts in, in a very short amount of time. And what that helped do was make, I think, some real discovery on camera as opposed to me pretending I'm acting to be surprised about seeing something for the first time, when in reality, uh, I, was, I was actually getting into the nitty-gritty of it on camera for the first time. Is there a lot of pressure in that, Nick? I mean, are you in, since you're in a time there frame, there is, there is one uh, one jumps to mind with uh, with regards to ownership history, where we had to dig in live on camera, and uh, and figure out exactly what we have. Bob, you do some stuff as well. Obviously, you do some um, guessing what cars are worth or deducting mm-hmm. it is through your regular job, and and not to compare you two, but as far as a process, how long does it take for you to go through your process, let's say, when you're dealing with insurance and all that other stuff? When I'm doing an evaluation of a vehicle for value, I'm, I'm looking at somewhere between an hour to two hours, and that's sitting quietly in a room with a computer, uh, doing all the research I can do with only seeing photographs. You're seeing the car up, up close and personal. And that makes a big difference, too. A photograph can hide a lot, and in many cases, I'm not the one that's done the photographs. I can't necessarily get the cal tag or the engine numbers, which are really important on cars like Porsches and Corvettes and such. Uh, so, yeah, two hours for me, I, I think, is about average, and you're trying to do it in 30 minutes. That's, that's tough. With a camera sitting around, either on you or you know, paying attention, and you, you're looking at it at the corner of your eye going... Yeah, that'll be on me pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. Has it taken? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, when you're looking at the car in person, there's a lot of things you can see that the camera won't pick up. And you can see a good or a bad paint job that a camera doesn't necessarily look like. I've been, uh, I volunteered as a driver for one of the auction companies, and I watched the TV screens in the background. The cars looked amazing on TV. The camera makes the car look a lot better 
than the reality of it when you're looking at it up close. That's true. Do you guys in the show, when you're looking at specific cars, obviously they're shiny for the camera, but do you find yourselves noticing things that maybe they wouldn't see, people wouldn't see just by watching the show? Very much so. Absolutely. There was, um, because of the lighting, as the car was being moved around, you could see uh, idiosyncrasies in the paint and uh, and the colors from panel to panel. Mm-hmm. Do you find, and I guess, Todd, at one point you were a producer, you've done some things behind the scenes and that kind of thing. Do you find that, and I don't know if your producers are doing things like this or not, but do they kind of do things to maybe set something there so you catch things later? Or is it pretty much a straight out, here's the vehicle, what do you think it's worth? Well, what it is is um, there was not a lot of information supplied to us. So what it, it was, there's the car. Go look at it. We'll need you on camera shortly. And like I said, you burn up every minute of your time trying to figure out what the car is. And then you step on camera and get the um, the opportunity to ask the owner the questions, which are really the second piece of the story. Um, so kind of operating in a vacuum, there's a car in a corner in a warehouse. Now let me go find out what we know about it. Is It was an interesting process. The story about the background story, how much does that really play into the price of the vehicle or the worth? Um, it doesn't affect it as much as people want it to. Um, it became... <laughs> It became common on set early on that we would say, you know, okay, this guy thinks this car is worth, let's just say, $50,000. It's very clear that it's about a $25,000 car with $25,000 worth of emotional attachment. The good news (laughs) is you can keep the emotional attachment. The car is the only thing that goes to the next guy. So that's a bit of a um, conversation that you have to walk people through, Mm. understanding the reality that they're only selling the car, not their memories. My grandmother used to own this old Buick and used to drive it around on Sundays with Grandpa in the front seat, and the top was down and the sun was out when you could actually see the sun. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sure you guys heard a lot of that. A lot of that. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> what, was your it, fa- what was your favorite out there story that you had to kind of rein in? Oh, I think... I think- there were quite a few of them that were precisely as you just uh, as you just <laughs> recited, um, and and that kind of story adds a great deal of uh, of saleability. Those people like those kind of stories. They want to buy a car with that kind of story attached. Does it actually add value? Well, it depends on the day. Mm-hmm. But at least we, you know, with with stories like that, you know the provenance back. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. I mean, one, a one owner from new car doesn't necessarily mean it's a good car. That owner could have been treacherous to the quality of that car. Go ahead. How does a professional builder? Uh, who on a vehicle affect the value, or or a show a car that may have been featured on another TV show of sort. I would say that at this point, um, obviously, if the builder of a car has a name, that's something. However, the format of those shows has not been kind to people's opinion of the end product. There's always such a time frame. It's always seems like such a rush job when in reality, if somebody were building a car for me, I would rather they took four times longer than they do on television and and did did quality work through and through that was actually going to last. I don't know what paint work that isn't properly prepped is going to look like three weeks or six months after the show is wrapped and gone. Mm-hmm. And what about guys that do restorations on cars versus leaving it original? 
Because there's always that debate. You can drive in a car and have it completely restored and looking like it just drove off the uh, showroom floor. And then somebody will bring the same car and it's got a layer of dust on it. It's been sitting in grandpa's garage for a long time, but everything's original. How do you weigh those two? I would say that the original car is is worth slightly more than the restored one. I also uh, know from experience that it sells much quicker. Uh, it's an opportunity that somebody can't really sleep on. Well, certain people uh, like this kind of thing. Not everybody does. The guys that are out for the ratty-looking, really original car know a good one when they see it, and they move quickly. Restored cars, well, there's always another restored car that may come up. I'm going to think about it for a bit. Mm-hmm. What about you, Nick? Oh, I've watched it flip-flop over the last 15 or so years from restored cars being of greater value. Suddenly they evened out, and now a good quality original car um, has taken over a little bit. I agree with Todd. It's uh, it's an opportunity to, to be snagged if you find one that's good, um, and I'm all for it. The, um, the history of that car started on day one. Uh, bumps, scratches, scuffs, and dings are part of its of, of the history of the car. Uh, I don't want to change that. I don't want to touch up the Mona Lisa because it faded a bit. <laughs> You've dealt with auctions. You work with auctions. And has this kind of fluctuated over the years? Because suddenly... Oh, very much so. At one point, everybody thought, well, Wayne Carini found something in a garage. Now we have to restore it. Now suddenly people are saying, well, no, I don't have to restore it at all. Yeah, they're, they're, it's a responsibility to the history of the, of, of the car to, to maintain it. You're a, to, it the, the phrase has been around for 100 years that we're the custodian of the car for now till it moves on to the next one. And, and we don't want to destroy that history uh, while it's with us. Hmm. And it's, it's I, an original paint car or a motorcycle is more worrisome to me to tootle down the road in than a, uh, than a restored one because you can just restore it again. With the market changing on uh, demographics, the, the buyer ages, uh, to me, seem to be going lower. Uh, how, do you, how do you see that affecting, I mean, I, I've seen it affecting the, the 30s and 40s vintage cars. Is that something, the trend that we're going to see going, or do you think the younger crowd is going to start going into some of the older vehicles? I think that the younger crowd appreciates the really high-end um, 30s and 40s cars, or, or even earlier. Um, the the not so unique uh, cars of that era, I'm afraid, uh, are having uh, fewer and fewer buyers by the day. Yeah, they are. They very much are. There's been a bit of a resurgence on the motorcycling side. It started off with uh, a cross-country ride on pre-1916 motorcycles, so pre-World War, World War One, and it did attract a, a fair number of younger crowd. Um, with an engineering uh, mindset. Um, we're watching that translate a little to cars, but but it's the high-end stuff. Um, the kids today seem to be very experience-based. They're, they're, they're playing really authentic video games. Um, so they're getting a, a pretty comprehensive driving experience sitting in the living room, and that translates to the cars. They want stuff to drive. Like uh, that. They don't want collections that they can look at and stare at and, and talk about with friends with a glass of wine and a cigar. They're more interested in getting out and driving, which is great. And for the car community, that's a good thing or a not-so-good thing? I think it's great. You know, These things sitting around, they're beautiful pieces of art, but, but it's 
I have more fun in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Todd, for for those who are taking a look at these cars, the last thing I, I almost want to see is the fact that they're going to take these old classic cars and modernize them, you know, put dubs on them or do something like that. I mean, is that kind of in the back of your mind like oh please don't do that um i don't really have that worry i don't i don't see that happening uh it would be awful if it did let me confirm that i have the same opinion as you but i don't really see that coming down the pike um you know the cars they drive the way that they do uh some of them have plenty of power those i believe will remain desirable to a certain group and like I said, the other ones, I just don't know who's going to be buying them in the future. Okay, let me let me ask you how this sticker shock works. So you were saying they they apply to come in on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, you haven't seen them, and then when you come to work, so to speak, uh, there's like a bunch of them in on the set. Yes. Right? Which, by the way, Todd, you were telling me that that set no longer exists. Correct. We we shot in uh, the old Firestone uh, tire factory, uh-huh. and I believe that well, we were told when filming that they were demolishing the building shortly after we were finished. Wow. Well, right. let's hope there's season two so they can sit there and try and find another set. I like that. That That's going to be interesting to see. But the set, as it was, it, it looked pretty eccentric i guess and it looked properly eccentric great building yeah Yeah. great building great great set dressing it was just cars everywhere and people everywhere it was it was neat so tell me a little bit about some of the favorite cars you remember going through the ones that really kind of caught your eye the cars were interesting but the people were more the people were fun talk about that the people were great they were they were really uh, an interesting bunch very varied bunch as varied as the cars um, we saw some. We saw some interesting cars. I saw, you know, one-off Mustang from back in the day. Um, some interesting customs. Some interesting modified cars. Would a show like this translate not only to the U.S. here, where you're going to be showing it on Discovery, and um, and I'm assuming somewhere along the line it could very well go to Discovery in other countries because uh, you guys are all over the place. But would it translate to other countries as well? Absolutely. Um, it, because it, it was all about the people. It was all about the, the human interest story. The people would uh, explain to you, our host, uh, Dennis, did a, a great job of extracting the information from the people as to why this car was so important to them. Because they weren't, uh, they're not important cars. They're important cars to people. And the people were given an opportunity to explain why they were important to them. And it, it made for it some very fun interactions. And the the stories as well. Not only the cars, there are some of them you guys have seen before, um, American cars, foreign cars, but unusual cars. What were the more unusual cars you guys came up with? We had a guy build a completely custom car based on a Mazda 929. And it was uh, supposed to be the third in a series of two important cars that were built in Italy in the 50s. So he owned the two cars and he went ahead and built himself a third. And um, so again, his enthusiasm for that was just amazing. But it was a Mazda 929 that had been heavily modified by him to look like two 50s Italian cars. Oh, wow. How wild is that? Very wild. (laughs) Pretty wild. Bob, do you know what a Keller is? A Keller? A Keller. I know Kelson and Kelmark. 
I had to look this up. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yep. And that has such an interesting background as well. It almost reminded me of a Crosley. You know, it, it was along those lines. There was a handful of them made, thirteen of them made, I think it was. Our colleague Randy Colson had to cram some uh, some uh, crib notes on that one in an hour. So we managed to get away with that. And I was still enamored with the uh, the camper van that looked like the biggest Tupperware edition you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Fabulous. What, was that like a real car? Real vehicle? It was definitely a real vehicle. That looked like a Tupperware it dish. It looked like an enormous orange Tupperware dish. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, this is some reason you, of course, want to see this show because it just is fascinating to me. Speaking of fascinating, I have to take a detour because Todd has a celebrity star background to him. You had something to do with Nick Cage's collection? Yeah. Uh, how did you fall into that, or how did you get him involved in that? Nick had a caretaker, a, a detailer, and a guy that exercised some of his cars. And I met that guy uh, by buying a car from him on eBay. And when I went over to pay for it, it was in an airplane hangar, which had some cars for Mr. Cage. And uh, we got to talking about some some more cars that he wanted, and I had incredible access through um, a, a colleague in Japan. There were amazing car collections in Japan uh, in the 90s, and uh, cars started coming back to the U.S., and Nicholas had this uh, list in his head of cars that he wanted, important Ferraris, important Italian sports cars, and I had access to them, and so... Oh, over about a three-year period, I was able to sell him probably $20 million worth of cars. Wow. And then he very quickly uh, tired of that, and I, one by one, for the two, three years after that, bought them all back. And the market had moved significantly that he was just seeing huge profits on all these cars, so anytime a piece of property or a bill was coming up in his life that uh, he didn't like. He he sold me something at a huge profit, and we had buyers for it. It worked great for everybody. So if I get this correctly, you sold him cars, yep, and he would sell them to you back yep. at a huge profit. Huge, yes. He loved you. He loved me. <laughs> that man loved you. Why yeah. didn't he put you in a movie or anything like that? That would have been great. I didn't aspire for that. I was happy with the relationship we had. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's that's kind of... Now, Nick, have you been involved? Have you sold stars anything? <laughs> Actually, yeah, one of my favorite cars, I think, you sold out from under me to Nick Cage, but I couldn't afford it at the time. Oh, I see. Okay. But have you ever sold? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I, I Drop uh, a name or two. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> I couldn't. Okay. Early on, I worked for, uh, uh, for Bentley Rolls-Royce Lamborghini Bugatti of Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. So every other person through the uh, through the door was uh, famous for something, mm-hmm. at least in their own lunchtime. No, I, well, absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> Does Nicholas still have those cars, or has he moved on? I think that he's moved on. Uh, I haven't spoken to him in years, mm-hmm. and I don't think he has. I know that he doesn't have anything significant um, vintage car-wise. I'm mm-hmm. sure he has some some very nice modern cars. But we're going to guide someone to buy a car or, or look for a, an entry level collector car now what would you guide them to after you an entry-level collector car i would say something that uh you enjoy driving and that parts are readily available so depending on whether you're a muscle car guy you know those those parts are, are very available and 
and certainly affordable, you know. So whether it's Mustang or Camaro or whether you want an Alfa Romeo or something, uh, there's lots of stuff out there that's fairly reliable, easy to keep on the road, and uh, fun to drive. Stay away from an AMC Marlin circa 1967, probably, then. That's true. They yes. made, yeah. Uh-huh. And Bob, further yeah. to that, a friend of mine asked me a year or two ago how I actually sold cars, how I actually could let go of the car. They're so beautiful, they're so wonderful, how do I let them go? I said, well, my magazine interview answer is uh, to make room financially and space-wise for the next one, because the next one's just as beautiful, mm-hmm. which he understood. I said, meanwhile, really, just go out and get an MGP. <laughs> They're just as much fun and parts are readily available. That's true. And that's a key thing, too, because a lot of people do get in and they look at the car and they think, wow, I always wanted one of those. But then they find out that that's the, the good day. Yeah. Well, that's the good day. But if the parts aren't available, it sits in your garage for a that's while. That's the bad day. That's the bad day, <laughs> trying to figure out how that works. So you've got the show coming up. It's called Sticker Shock. Antiques Roadshow with Wheels. No, wait a minute. That's not right. Let me redo that. The show is called Sticker Shock. Starts uh, Monday, April 30th, 10 p.m. Eastern. And you guys will be on Wednesdays, 10 p.m. for the rest of the run of the show. How many episodes? 13. 13 episodes. That's going to be a lot of fun. That is definitely going to be a lot of fun. Before we let you go, I need to know, of all the cars you've ever had, what's the one car you wish you could have back? Or bike. Uh, I bought a uh, 2003 Aston Vanquish a couple of years ago as a as a big birthday present for myself, and 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 I sold it because someone showed me a profit, and I want it back. Oh wow! Did you walk around or drive that car and always think you're James Bond? Absolutely, every moment, every <laughs> possible moment. Of, I carried thing, my finger around, pointing like a gun. I wore Charlie's Angels, but suits. yeah. It was, it was I'm Bond. full on. Yeah. James Bond. I, suddenly, I was Smith, Nick Smith, to everyone who would ask me. It was pretty <laughs> horrific. I think my wife was very annoyed. Especially when you guys went out on a really nice occasion. I called her the Bond girl. It didn't go well. Oh, okay. Well, it would be, a, I would think it would. Todd, what about you? I had a 73 911 Carrera RS, uh, perfectly restored in the original color of tangerine orange. And I had that for a few years when my son was very young. I enjoyed it very much. But as a father with a young child, somebody offered me a pretty nice profit, you know, profit that would have taken me a few months to uh, to earn at work. And so I took it. And since then, the cars have doubled in value. Maybe they've even tripled in value. I think the guy that owns that car now paid a million dollars for it, and I sold it for less than a third of that hmm and my son's only eight so it's not like we're talking about you know years and years and years i mean this has been a pretty quick run-up i've seen that on a lot of porsches what what can you equate that to because i've seen speedsters going crazy lately speedsters have gone crazy lately that's absolutely true um, what can I equate it to? They are very re- reliable. They're fun to drive. Uh, there's not that uh, nervous moment. Will it start? Will it get me there? They're just really kind of easy to drive, easy to use. And the expensive ones don't always look expensive. And that appeals to uh, a certain crowd as well. They all kind of look the same regardless of value. Cars you want that are on your list of everybody has a top 10 car list. Everybody has a car list. Oh, I want this, 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 and this. What's on yours, Nick? The first. Give me the first three. Uh, my go-to is is always the Cal Spider that you sold to Nick Cage. It yeah. was black tan, long wheelbase, 
modified by its uh, original owner, uh, which was Mr. Piaggio of Vespa fame. Uh, that's the go-to, but then the list goes on and on and on. I wouldn't mind the RS. Yeah. Is it available? No. I don't have the money, of course. <laughs> no. I think there's going to be some negotiating when we're done. Todd, what about you? Uh, well, circling back to the beginning, I think I should own an E-Type one day. Uh, so that's one for sure. I'd like to have a Porsche 356 Coupe that's just not very nice. You know, I'd like one that's maybe a little shabby so that I can drive it quite often and park it wherever I want. And uh, what is number what, three? What color? I don't know my absolute. It's going to be shabby, whatever it is. Shabby blue, shabby red. Shabby, I've got. Shabby. Just, you know. <laughs> shabby chic. Nice, nice enough without being perfect, because I don't want that oh, responsibility. Yeah, I've definitely not got perfect. Wow, that's the one thing about paint, is because you can always change the paint. You can make it very fancy, but let's be honest. You go take it to a parking lot. You go take it for a Sunday ride. You're going to park six miles away from everybody else, because the first nick or ding you have on it, you are just going to lose your mind. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Bob, thank you so much, sir. No problem. I enjoyed this. Thank you very much, guys. I'm looking forward to, to seeing the show. This is, gonna, this is a, like uh, Randy was saying, it's road show for car guys. Oh, by the way, where did Sticker Shock come from, the name? I mean, obviously, it's, it's a classic name. I love the name. Did that, was that any idea how that came about? It was one of many. Yeah, we had nothing to do with it. Uh, We began under another name, which I actually kind of liked. I did, too. And uh, What was it? You could tell us. It was Garage Gold. Ah, that's not bad. And then we morphed into Sticker Shock, showing up for work one day. Yeah. I like Sticker Shock, though. That's a good name. I like that, because people, especially when they find out how much it's going to be or how much you guys give worth to the car, their eyes are going to get big, and it's going to be Sticker Shock either which way. Right. Excellent. And sometimes it goes the other way. Yes. So there's, there's, there's that as way. well. What? There's that as well, and it's equally exciting, if not better. <laughs> I, I like the I like what you're doing though, because a, a lot of times people sit at home, they watch the auctions on TV, they look in their garage and go, "Well, if it wasn't for the wheels, my car'd be worth the same." Right. Yeah, we're we're about to see that they uh, an AMC Pacer just sold for twenty six thousand dollars over the weekend. So get ready, Bob. Seriously? Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? I take it it was not a restoration; it was an original. It was an original, very very low mileage yeah. car. But now we're going to watch it come by the flood load. And nope. that auction company publicized that car before they went to auction with it. That, that, was a, that was a draw to come to that auction. Yeah, it was a big deal. We had we had, we were uh, actually gambling on that one. Really? How'd you do? I lost. <laughs> I hit it at 23. It did 26. Okay. Well, still, you were, you were pretty high. I mean, considering everyone calls those things fish bowls and stays, you know, crosses the emergency, get away from it. Yeah, there was a, there was an argument who wanted to drive it across the block uh, who, or who didn't want to drive it across the block. <laughs> Thanks to Nick Smith and Todd Wordman of the new TV show Sticker Shot on Discovery TV for joining Bob Beck and myself. Make sure you check out the show with host Dennis Pitsenbarger, Todd, Nick, Randy Carlson, and Addison Brown. Check out their special preview. It's coming up Monday, April 30th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific, with weekly episodes every Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific on Discovery. Check your local listings. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to all of our podcasts right here on Radio.com. 
knx1070.com. Or if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you subscribe to us, rate us five stars, please write us a review. It would really help us out. And make sure you follow us not only on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Watch our videos on Facebook and YouTube. We also have videos on our website, talkingaboutcars.net. So many places to catch up with us. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Thanks for joining me, and join me again as we have some fun talking about cars.